Hello everyone, we're back with part two of our lesson on the role of the prophet. We saw in Isaiah 42 how prophets are spokesmen for God, how they announce vital information, and how they are able to see clearly when others cannot. And they're able to do this because God has spoken directly to them. So Anna and I are here today to talk through another passage in Isaiah. And in this passage, we're going to see prophecy regarding the servant that we were introduced to before. So why don't we dive in um, to what is sometimes called the fourth and final servant song. Um, and this is going to be from Isaiah 52 and 53. So this passage is split up into five stanzas, three verses each. Um, so why don't we just jump in with stanza one um, and see what we learn about this servant. All right, Isaiah 52 verses 13 to 15. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him for that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard they understand. Wow. Okay. So that's an interesting just kind of introduction to the servant. Um, and the most interesting thing that I see first is just where it says, okay, he's going to be high and lifted up. Uh, it starts out so good. Yeah, exalted. Um, <laughs> but then I think it's just the next verse. It says that he's marred. Um, that, yeah, he's, his appearance is so marred. He's disfigured, um, which doesn't really go with someone who's exalted and lifted up. Yeah, because when I think, you know, Isaiah wrote this like, you know, around 700 BC or something. And so if someone was reading this at the time, like for, they would just, it would be a question, what does this mean? Because yeah, it starts out so positive, like I'm going to exalt my servant, I'm going to lift him up, he's going to be like, uh, everybody's going to be impressed by him. And then the second system is, second sentence is his so marred beyond human semblance, which is terrible. So I feel like just a natural reader of this raises an obvious question. How does this paradox exist? What does this mean? Yeah. And also it says like kings will shut their mouth because of him. Um, so it's like, okay, there's going to be something like so shocking. So like just that puts them off, turns them away. Um, and it's like, okay, but they're also supposed to be exalted. And that's that paradox you said, Anna. Um, so yeah, it's interesting to see like, okay, how are we going to see this exalted, high and lifted up, kind of go hand in hand then with this kind of suffering, disfigurement, marred. Well, and we, as we talked when we read the earlier passages, like obviously in some sense, Israel, the nation of Israel was God's servant, but they failed as a servant. And this seems to predict another servant. And this servant will sort of go beyond the reaches of Israel because it talks about kings in the plural and that which has not been told to them, they see. That which they have not heard, they understand. So there seems to be a pushing beyond the boundaries of Israel and the beyond, the, beyond the boundaries of those who had previously received God's revelation. But again, it's not clear how. And then the sprinkle language is kind of, sprinkle with what? Is that a priestly language of sprinkling with like holy water or purification? Um, there is a, a hint of that, but it's not fully worked out here. Yeah, and also, I feel like, yeah, these are the questions people would have. Yeah. Well, and since you say sprinkle, it's like sprinkle many nations, which just adds to kind of your point of like, okay, yeah, it's going beyond Israel. Because, yeah, if it's the sprinkling of water and sacrifices somehow, then it's like, okay, that was only for Israel. 
um, the sacrificial system was God's people, Israel. It didn't go beyond that. Um, so yeah, there are more questions in there. Yeah. Um, well, why don't we keep going then? Um, so we'll push into, this is now going to be uh, chapter 53 um, and verses 1 through 3. So let me just read this. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. I think it's interesting here that Isaiah moves into, sometimes I think I've heard it called the prophetic past tense. You know, he's saying this thing has happened, but it's prediction of something that will come in the future. So there is this sense that it's so certain that it's almost like looking back on it, but it is still a future prophecy. Um, and then I love the image that he uses for he grew up, the servant grew up like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground, because growing like a plant is such a good metaphor for something not being noticeable, right? Because when something grows, it's like it never seems to actually be happening, but then one day you look and there it is. But it's a very like subtle entrance into the world. Um, and so it's saying the servant will come in this subtle way, like a new growth, that doesn't like shock us in a sense and doesn't like snap out of the sky, but yet still appears and is still significant. So I love that, that image that he gives. Yeah. And just kind of more that we see on that. It's like, okay, yeah, he's coming kind of from these, maybe on another um, plant metaphor, kind of humble roots. Mm -hmm. um, I like it. I like it. <laughs> um, um, and so it's like he has no form or majesty. We should look at him. No beauty. Um, so it's like people aren't attracted to him. They don't turn. He's not like, I think of Saul, King Saul, um, mm -hmm. who was said handsome. He was someone who people turned to who looked like a king. Um, so this servant isn't someone who people just naturally turn to. Um, he's probably more someone who they just naturally their eyes would pass over. Um, and they wouldn't really notice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then I feel like it takes even a, a more negative term. You know, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief as one from whom men hide their faces. Yeah. So I feel like he's not only just maybe an average looking person, but also he's someone who people just want to look away from because he's associated with sorrow and rejection. And people don't really like to identify with people who are going through that kind of rejection by society. And instead, they sort of walk on the other side and they hide their faces from someone going through that. So it, it becomes even more uh, sort of negative um, as an intentional rejection, not just a not noticing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And again, it's interesting because we talked about kind of this paradox that we saw in the stanza before, um, but just thinking about, okay, so yeah, he's coming from humble roots. They're not noticing him. They're going further than that. They're like actively turning away from him. Um, but also we see that he said he's the servants described as the arm of the Lord. Mm -hmm. um, so someone who's going to kind of carry the weight of God, in a sense, who's going to reveal God in a different way. Uh -huh. So again, just we have these kind of different images that we wouldn't naturally put together, um, but we see them both here. Well, why don't I go into the third stanza and I'll read Isaiah 53, 4 through 6. 
So we'll keep hearing more about this servant and why he was rejected. So here we go. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Yeah, so this is striking, just the language that's used here. Um, And it's immediate, just in that first verse Anna read, um, he has borne our grief, carried our sorrow. Um, So this servant is going to carry our grief, carry our sorrow. Um, And that's remarkable if you think of like the time that this was written. Isaiah's writing this to the Israel people and they're like, like if they were to hear this, they would probably be very confused. What do you mean a servant's going to come and like bear our grief, our sorrows? Because um, I think on one hand, it's like, okay, yeah, we walk alongside people. We try to bear each other's burdens. Um, but the language here seems stronger than that. Um, it's not just like, okay, I'm picking up this really big book bag and helping you carry it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, there's just stronger language like sorrows, grief, affliction, transgressions even. Um, so that's just striking to see the language there um, and that the servant is going to be carrying our, <laughs> our transgressions, our afflictions. Um, yeah. And the idea of the chastisement, he, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. I mean, the question is just how does that work? And it kind of, it comes back to me because we talked about Psalm 51 where David said, you know, deliver me from my blood guiltiness, O God, and, my, my, and I will declare your righteousness. There seems to be a mechanism here that somehow people are being cleansed from sin. But it's sort of, the question is, but how? Like, how would somebody else's, how would the servant's chastisement bring peace to us, to the collective us that is being said here? Because it says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So I think the Israelites at the time, I mean, they're aware of the sacrificial system in the sense of you can sort of lay your hand on the hand of a of a goat or something, and um, symbolically your sins are sort of trans- the guilt of your sins are transferred to that goat. And then when the goat is sacrificed, atonement has been made for your sin. So they have some understanding of like transfer of guilt and atonement, but still there's a question of how this would work with the servant that's being talked about here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And they don't, yeah, they won't fully understand this. Um, And I think it just, as we look at it too, it's like, the only really reason that's given for the suffering of the servant um, is kind of that through the servant, um, he's going to take some of their guilt. Um, he's going to, uh, his wounds, like through the servant, wounds will be healed. Um, and that's really the only reason that we see that the servant is going to take this pain, um, is going to be rejected kind of by others. Um, in the previous stanza, um, is going to be, you know, despised, um, esteemed, not turned away from. Um, so yeah, that's the only really reason we well, see. And yeah, and then it's sort of insult to injury because it has the line, yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. Like we thought he was just getting the punishment that he should have gotten from God. 
um, which reminds me so much of like the book of Job when Job's comforters, you know, all the bad things happen to Job and his comforters say and come and say, you must have done something wrong. Like you're being punished because you did something wrong. And so this text is saying, if all these bad things are happening to the servant, the servant must have got, done something wrong. And that's how other people are going to judge the situation. Okay, well, why don't we continue on? Uh So this is going to be now verses 7 through 9 of Isaiah 53. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living? stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. So now before we just had sort of sorrow and strickenness, but now we have death, a lamb to slaughter. He was buried with the wick, the he, he made his grave with the wicked, and he was with rich ma- a rich man in his death. So now we've progressed on the trajectory to actual death. And it has these very violent metaphors of like slaughtering a lamb and being cut off. Um, so we see these extreme things happening to the serpent. Um, and again, the question is why? Because it says, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Um, so again, we just have this question of like, why did all this happen? <laughs> Yeah, and why did this happen? I think another question, too, is just like, why does the servant take it? Mm-hmm. Because he seems to just accept kind of what is put on him. Um, he doesn't say, this is unjust, I'm going to fight against it. Um, but he seems to be like, no, this is something that I need to just take on. Um, and we see that because it says he opened not his mouth. Um, um, and that, that phrase is repeated Um, in this section, just kind of saying, okay, even though, you know, he's led like a sheep, um, even though he's oppressed and afflicted, you know, he's not speaking up, he's not crying out. Um, And, you know, I think there's a, there's a question, why? Why isn't he speaking out? Um, But I think it is important to see that, you know, he's choosing to accept this. Um, For what reason? It seems unclear so far. Yeah, so we've reached this sort of valley of death, basically, in the account of the servant. So now let's see where we go in the next and final stanza, which are verses 10 through 12. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Yeah, so this is just intriguing because the last verse of the last stanza said, although he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. And then the next verse that we see is, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. 
Um, it's like shocking. Yeah. <laughs> and I think some, some different versions of the Bible also said it pleased the Lord to crush him. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just like, okay, how, how is it God's will or how does it please God to crush him? Um, because I don't think God, I would not say God desires people to die. God does not desire people to be crushed or to be in despair, um, which then means that this is pointing to something larger. Because um, if it's going to please God, if it's God's will, then that means that there is a much bigger purpose. There is something better that we um, can't really imagine, that the people of Israel wouldn't have been able to imagine. But it's really pointing towards, okay, this is God's plan. It is his will. Therefore, it must be good. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. And there are like the the words crush him, put him to grief, soul make an offering out of the anguish of his soul. So we still have these very dire circumstances, but now we get hope, an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. So there's some kind of transformation that's happened here. In the previous stanza, he had died. He was considered cut off from the land of the living, but now he shall see his offspring and he shall prolong his days. So the question is, how does this stanza come after the previous stanza? You know, what does it mean that he shall see and be satisfied out of his anguish? So there's just, there's a lot of in here that just raises questions like how, how will this be? How, how does anguish lead to life? Um, You know, in what situation do you see anguish, but then receive satisfaction at the end of it? And that's again, like you're saying, Sky, that's the reason that it was the Lord's will to crush him is that there seems to be something that comes out of this, of this um, suffering and oppression. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think some of that stuff that comes out of this, um, we do see some of it where it's like, okay, he's going to divide the spoil with the strong. Um, he's going to have a portion. Um, he's m- going to make intercession for the transgressors. And that one's a little bit different. Um, that intercession Um, But it's like, this is saying that he has life. Um, He's going forward. And it's not just then a humble life, um, but it's a life that has strength. It's a life that has purpose. It's a life that has meaning and implications kind of for the world. Yeah. And even it's makes, he yet he bore the sin of many past tense and makes intercession for the transgressors. So there is a sense that this servant, life has returned to the servant and continues. And again, we see what is the spoil that he's dividing? What is the portion that he's sharing with the many? It says, out of him, many will be accounted righteous. My my servant shall make many righteous. So we see that that is the thing that's being shared among many people. And that is kind of reiterating what we saw before, that this servant bears the iniquities of people, but then justifies them and makes them righteous in some way. And this is extraordinary. This passage really is extraordinary to like, if you've just really heard what we've just read um, from Isaiah 52 and 53, and this language that Anna just kind of focused in on um, of making people righteous, bearing the sins of many, making intercession. um, And why this passage is so incredible um, is because all those things really point towards Jesus. Um, This prophecy Um, that God speaks into the world through the prophet Isaiah 700 years before Christ. This prophecy speaks so specifically 
um, to what Christ is going to do, to how he's going to come, to what he's going to bear, um, and to ultimately, you know, what he's going to accomplish on the cross, um, bearing the sins of many, making intercession for the transgressors, um, bringing righteousness to the people. Um, so there's so many ways that this passage just speaks um, specifically about Jesus. So I thought if we just kind of took a moment um, to really look at kind of some of the ways that we see Jesus fulfilling this prophecy um, so specifically. So, yeah, what are just some ways, and Anna, you and I can maybe just call out a few, even though I know there's more um, that we could touch on. But yeah, what are a few that you see? One that I really love is just that it says he has no form or majesty that we should look on him. We definitely know through Jesus of Nazareth's life that he was a very average guy. Um, he came from a carpenter's family. He had nothing distinguished in his background. Like he was the son of David, but by that point, you know, his family didn't have any wealth or really significant status within the community that they were in. They were just kind of a normal average family. Um, and I love even the fact that the Bible never physically describes Jesus in any way, never says he was tall or good looking or short and not good looking or fat or thin or had this color hair or these color eyes. We don't have any physical description of Jesus. And I think that's really important because it's saying that's not what struck anybody. Nobody was like, oh, look at that guy. He has like a shining halo around his head or like, <laughs> wow, he's such a good looking person or something. It, that just wasn't at all the source of Jesus's attractiveness or his distinctiveness. So yeah, I love how Jesus fulfills. He had no former majesty that we should look on him. And I think something, um, another one that stands out and it's in a different vein, but something we kind of asked the question of earlier um, when this phrase we saw, he will sprinkle many nations. Um, and kind of asking like, okay, how is a servant going to sprinkle nations, plural? What does this mean? Um, and I think thinking about Jesus, it's so just remarkable to see how he fulfills this in the sense of that his blood was shed. Um, and through his blood, he was able to like sprinkle his blood on the nations, on more than Israel, on the Gentile nations, um, which then can include, does include all of us today. Um, but just seeing how his sacrifice, how he's then able to sprinkle the nations, how his blood is able to cover um, and extend beyond the Hebrew people, beyond the Israelites, um, to all nations, all people, all tongues, all tribes. And I think it's important here, too, that Isaiah says so many times that we will reject him. We esteemed him stricken and despised. You know, he was... Um, he made his death with sinners and with the wicked, just like Jesus was crucified on the cross next to thieves, as if he was a thief, as if he was guilty um, of, of serious crimes mm -hmm. against the law. And, you know, because we can partially understand maybe if someone, if there's like a hero in a nation and he's going to go on a really difficult quest, like, okay, to save everybody, you have to get, you know, something off the top of a mountain and we're going to all cheer while we see you go through the suffering and we're going to be like, wow, he pushed through and he made these sacrifices. And there's a way that you could go through suffering that was validated by your community and praised by your community. 
But this is not the kind of suffering that this that Jesus goes through or that the servant is predicted to going through. It's saying the community around him will say he is being punished by God. He's not in favor with God. God is against him. And that's exactly what happened to Jesus. The Jewish community as a whole rejected him as a Messiah. Individuals did come to believe in him. But as a whole, the, commu- the community rejected him and said that it was God's will that he would die for his sins, and he was put to death by that community. So that kind of suffering is what is anticipated in this um, song, and Jesus really fulfills that aspect of it. Yeah, and just because you mentioned like it was God's will, um, it just seems so obvious if we think about how Jesus fulfills it. Um, just so obvious in the sense of, yes, this was God's will. Um, it was God's will to put Jesus on the cross. Um, and it was his will not because he enjoyed putting to death his son, not because he enjoyed um, watching his son go through so much pain and be rejected, but because he loves us. Because he knew that going through this, putting his son through this, watching Jesus die on the cross, um, he knew all the good that would come from that. He knew that then we would be able to be saved, that we would be able to have a relationship with him. Um, And that is just so remarkable. Um, And just the beautiful truth at the core of our faith. Um, but just, yeah, it's great. It answers that question of like, okay, how could God be pleased or how could it be his will to crush him? Um, and it becomes very obvious with Jesus. Yeah. And so I love how this passage is both like an amazing macro statement of the work of Jesus. Like you were just saying, like, this is our salvation. He has died for the sins of many and God did this to bring us out of our own sin. And then there's even like tiny micro fulfillments, you know, and with a rich man in his grave, which is just a really neat thing that it is true. When Jesus died, Joseph of Arimathea asked for his body and put Jesus' body in his own grave. And it was a wealthy man's grave that a poor person wouldn't have had access to. So there's just these huge fulfillments in these passages, this passage and, and specific kind of smaller fulfillments, but that also point to Jesus. And I think that's a neat thing about this passage. Yeah, and I love that one. Um, also, because the line, it says like that the lines that go back to back is kind of like his grave was made with the wicked, but the rich man and the death. And yeah, common mm-hmm. criminal would never have been put in, you know, a rich man's grave. Um, and But someone who's crucified, someone who's convicted like a common criminal then ends up in a rich man's grave, which is just like, what? That would never happen. Um, but Isaiah records that it will happen and it does happen just like you said Anna I I love that detail that's one of my favorites <laughs> so there are so many ways that Jesus fulfills this passage um, we've mentioned a few there are others um, so we'd encourage you just to reflect on this passage a little more um, and to ask yourself how else do you see Jesus fulfilling this passage that we see in Isaiah so we'll ask you to reflect on that Um, But as we close, we also just want to encourage you um, to reflect on and kind of sit with um, what the implications are for our life, Um, what this means that Jesus was our sacrificial substitute. Um, And just I'd encourage you to ask yourself, how does this passage deepen your understanding of what Jesus did for us, for you, for me, um, for the world? Um, What does Yeah, how does this deepen your understanding of what Jesus did for us on the cross? Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.